Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. There is a danger that technologies are not a sign of human progress, but of decline, making us more advanced, but also sicker, more self-destructive, more nihilistic. The question I will be trying to answer in this book is whether our technologies are the product not of innovation, but of asceticism, whether technologies are life-denying ideals that we can hold in the palms of our hands. Hi, it's me, Dimitar, and welcome back to Brussels Bites. The ominous quote you just heard is from the author of a very interesting book, which we'll be discussing today. The book is called Nihilism and Technology. In this podcast, we've mostly talked about politics and policy, but today I've decided to approach technology from a different angle, philosophy. And today we're joined by an extremely interesting guest. Dr. Norman Gertz is Assistant Professor of Applied Philosophy at the University of Twente and a senior researcher at the 4TU Center for Ethics and Technology. Nolan is the author of Nihilism and Technology, the book we'll talk about today, as well as the author of a standalone book which recently came out dedicated exclusively on nihilism, published by MIT Press. Nolan, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into it. Nolan, what is nihilism and why did you decide to apply nihilism and Nietzsche to modern technology? Right. Well, uh, the funny thing about nihilism is that it's a word uh, that gets thrown around a lot uh, without anyone ever bothering to define it. Uh, so taking for granted, uh, we already know what it means and we don't have to worry about it, which itself is kind of a definition of nihilism. Uh, so what I became concerned about was this idea that um, technology was increasingly helping us with explicitly this problem of taking things for granted, of uh, not paying attention to the world around us, and what was interesting for me was that the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, even though he's from the 19th century, uh, I found as a very contemporary voice on a lot of the issues that I saw facing us today. And he was explicitly a philosopher of nihilism. Uh, so he was very much concerned about how, for example, religious ideals uh, can actually be uh, life-destroying, world-destroying uh, ideals that we really need to pay attention to and that I see uh, basically being reproduced by technologies today. And what is Nietzsche's fundamental objection you mentioned in your book? Why is our suffering destined to never be f fully cured? So basically, uh, Nietzsche was very much influenced by uh, Darwin and this idea that we are, uh, in many ways, a product of our environment. So what was interesting was this idea that Nietzsche is writing uh, around the time of the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. Uh, life is supposed to be getting better. Uh, there's increasing peace. Um, obviously, this is before World War I, uh, but still this idea that uh, life was getting better thanks to science and technology. And what Nietzsche was worried about was this idea that as the environment became more peaceful, uh, then basically we would become uh, less able to, to adapt, or sorry, we would adapt to the world uh, and become uh, increasingly uh, unable to deal with anything hostile, uh, anything unpeaceful. Uh, and we would be forced to rely more and more on science and technology uh, to replace what we had lost. Uh, so again, you have this idea that um, 
we really need to uh, focus on ourselves and try to figure out how we can best adapt, uh, not uh, passively, but actively. And so this idea that uh, we are suffering even though we are happy and peaceful, and that uh, what he sees being produced by uh, priests explicitly in uh, Christian religion uh, is a response to suffering that doesn't cure it, uh, but actually just helps to sort of paper over it. And this is what he objects to. But this is written in the 19th century. Right. Why is this relevant in the 21st century when we have advanced as a human species, no? Well, that's sort of the irony, right? So that if he's worried about science and technology making life uh, easier and easier, and thus making us weaker and weaker, uh, then increasing progress means the problem is even worse. Uh, and what's interesting is that even though Nietzsche is writing middle of the 19th century, he said, uh, I probably will not be understood for 100 years. So we're, we're basically right on time. I came too early, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, the man of the future. And you, uh, I think, can find, as I tried to suggest, in the third essay of his uh, Genealogy of Morality, uh, where he provides this critique of uh, the explicit uh, medication, as he puts it, that priests give us, uh, exactly the same uh, kinds of medications being offered by tech companies today. <laughs> Indeed, you, you examine our technological practices. Um, you mentioned several of them. For example, technohypnosis. You mentioned mechanical activity. Are these the tools which tech companies give us and actually make us sicker? Right. So in uh, the genealogy, Nietzsche discusses this idea that priests give us what I saw as, as basically five kinds of medications. Uh, Self-hypnosis. Uh, so this would be uh, drinking, sleeping, meditating. Uh, mechanical activity, uh, this would be the blessings of work or puritanical society or Protestant society. Uh, you have, um, sorry, you have um, what uh, he described as uh, the helpfulness of, uh, of charity uh, and this idea that um, Trying to give uh, to people is actually a way of, of uh, masking our desire for power. Because if people are in need, so that makes them needy. And if we're capable of helping them, that means that we're more powerful. Uh, he talked about herd uh, mentality, which is probably what he's most famous for. Uh, and he talked about uh, what he called the most dangerous one, uh, these orgies of feelings, uh, where he said that we occasionally explode. Mm. Uh, so in the Netherlands, you have uh, Koningsdag, for example, uh, where everyone... Uh, whether or not they care about the king just just goes out and parties as much as possible. Uh, king's Day, you mean. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, so I tried to say that tech companies give us uh, basically something similar today, uh, what I called uh, tech, tech hypnosis, uh, so net, net, uh, Netflix and chill, uh, data-driven activity, uh, so do whatever your Fitbit tells you to do. Uh, we obviously have, uh, you know, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, uh, so digital philanthropy. Uh, we obviously have herd networking. Uh, Facebook and Twitter explicitly use the language of, of following people. Uh, and I called um, orgies of clicking, uh, or again, uh, what we call maybe uh, cancel culture. So you look on Twitter to see who's, who you can attack that, that day. So basically, the, the problems and the passions and, 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 and even the things which made us even sicker in the 19th century, we still, we still have it, but now 
we it's even more pervasive because of because of technology, correct? Right, and I think uh, part of the danger is exactly that we are outsourcing um, a lot of the priestly activities that Nietzsche described to technologies. So at least uh, there was a time when this was something that people did to people. Uh, but now we can have algorithms doing it to people. We can have artificial intelligence doing it to people. I can just have a device that I buy for myself and put on my wrist that does it for me. Uh, so I think it's, it's um, what I find explicitly worrying is this idea that technology uh, increasingly personalizes this uh, so that I can tailor the medication explicitly to me uh, and increasingly uh, divorce myself, uh, not just from reality, but from uh, other people around me. I really want to follow up on this um, because I fully agree with this and we are seeing more and more this resulting individualization, this focus on the self, which leads, some would argue, that it leads to the atomization of society, even tearing down social fabric because in our spare, spare time we're trying to optimize ourselves, we're trying to think about ourselves as if we foolishly attempt to become stronger individuals, but this makes society weaker. Do you agree? Yeah, and this was actually something uh, Hannah Arendt, for example, mm -hmm. talked about uh, in The Human Condition, uh, where she said that um, basically what, what she described as psychology, uh, and this is in the 1950s, uh, she called desert psychology. And she said that this idea that um, psychology is helping us to overcome our suffering uh, means that rather than use suffering to realize that there's something wrong with the world, we think instead there's something wrong with ourselves. So we increasingly turn inward instead of outward, and politics is replaced by psychology. Uh, and this is what she calls uh, turning the world into a desert. And the worst part for her is that then we increasingly learn to adapt to the desert uh, rather than fighting it. Uh, so changing the desert. Yeah. Right, right. So I think similarly with technologies, uh, for example, Philips uh, developing smart lighting uh, to make you happier at work. And this idea that if I'm, uh, you know, if we have scientific evidence that these lights in my office should make me a better worker, should make me a happier worker, then if I'm not happy at work, uh, it can't be the work itself. The office has provided me everything that should make me happy. The problem must be me. So increasingly, I'm turned, uh, forced to look at myself and say, well, if I'm unhappy, it must be me. So any grounds that there would have been for going on strike or even just complaining uh, now is again turned back against myself. One of the many takeaways in your book is that technologies can themselves become sources of suffering, of the very suffering they were meant to overcome. Here I quote your, your book. Also another short quote. There is a risk that in the pursuit of improving technologies and their application, we forget to improve ourselves. But wait a minute, this would sound very gloomy for many people. Didn't we agree that social media, online applications, and better connection is empowering society, empowering individuals? Right. And here I rely on, for example, the French sociologist uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, who, in, again, in the 1950s, uh, talked about this idea that um, technologies uh, not only are basically immune to morality, but they actually give us a new morality. Uh, so, for example, if you go to the airport and you try to think of what's the, what's the best seat while I'm waiting for my plane, uh, oftentimes it's the seat uh, closest to an outlet so I can plug in all my devices. Mm -hmm which means it's not best for me, it's best for my devices. Uh, but I no longer see the difference. So uh, again, this becomes more and more uh, typical for how we think, that what's best for the devices is best for me. And so this gives us a new value system, where good and bad, good and evil, is replaced by 
uh, for example, inefficient, efficient. Uh, so when we talk about this idea that, uh, for example, as my colleagues at the University of Twente often say, you know, I'm making a, a false distinction between humans and technologies. We are technological beings, so what's good for technology is good for us. Uh, I see this as, as similarly uh, to those in the 50s talked about a sort of retroactive justification for what we've been doing to ourselves through technologies. This is extremely interesting, and it, it reminds me something I've been thinking about a lot, and it's, it's also a discourse in, 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 in writings and, and social media, commentary on, on, on technology. Also, it's, it's mentioned in your book that maybe we're becoming so dependent on technology that we cannot communicate as individuals or we cannot pursue our goals without having a device as a mediator between us, right. without having a phone or, 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 or a desktop laptop, whatever. Can we link this with the observed social tendencies lately, especially in the younger generation? Again, uh, lower social interaction, even lower sexual um, intercourse, increased anxiety. Are these applications, are these electronic mediators sheltering people from real life? Well, what's important for me, and, and you mentioned this term mediator, is this idea in, in uh, mediation theory that uh, I tried to discuss in the book that I don't want to talk about our technologies, good or bad, but rather the idea that they reshape what we think good and bad mean. I think this also happens in how we think intimacy means, uh, what we think solidarity means, what we think political action means. Uh, so if I tweet on a hashtag, I've been politically active. Uh, if I send a heart emoji to someone, I love them. Uh, and if I have a lot of followers, uh, then I'm very popular. Uh, so we uh, constantly see this on Twitter, where people are, are uh, fighting against this anti-social narrative and saying, no, 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 I, my friends on Twitter are friends. Mm. Uh, and I deny anyone who would say that this is fake. Uh, so again, applying some sort of virtual real dualism. Um, but I think, again, it, it is important to realize that there is something lost. So I do not want to deny that that isn't a kind of intimacy. Uh, but we don't have to say that it's exactly the same kind as physical intimacy, for example. Um, so I do think that you see increasingly, uh, for example, the development of sex robots, uh, that one of the main concerns I have is that the way we respond to the problems produced by technology is by creating new technologies to solve the problems of the past technology. And then now that we have sex robots, we're, of course, talking about whether robots should have rights. And then we'll talk about maybe we should give them artificial intelligence. Then we worry about, well, they're going to replace our jobs. Are they going to kill us? Uh, then we'll develop good AI to fight bad AI. Uh, and in some It's point, like a vicious circle, like a downward spiral. Yeah? Right, exactly. And this is what I was worried about in this idea um, that basically I want um, technologies to do the work for us and leave me out of it. Uh, you saw this, for example, in Zuckerberg's uh, congressional testimony uh, where he said, yes, please regulate us. I, I want to develop... Uh, good AI uh, to, to police our network. So, so yes, please pass all the laws you want. Uh, because, of course, that's still pushing the, the technology as the savior narrative. So, so people were saying, oh, I'm shocked that he's pushing for regulation. But the regulation has to be technology on technology. And we can't think anymore in terms of anything other than technology. But what about the benefits? Let's play devil's advocate here. Because technology helps people optimize their time, potentially opens up more free time. But do we actually make use of our leisure time? 
do technologies actually help us in this pursuit? Well, it's interesting, again, so as I said earlier, this idea from Elul uh, that efficiency comes to be seen increasingly as a value. Um, I think similarly with optimization. Mm. Uh, why do I want to optimize my time? Uh, so why is that seen as a good thing? Uh, why do I want uh, this idea of, of freedom uh, produced by technology? So if I have a Roomba, then I don't have to do chores. Uh, and the Roomba advertisement, uh, it doesn't actually talk about how great the vacuum is. It shows a family uh, finally playing with each other, right? This idea that if the, if the little robot hockey puck slave does all the work for you, then you can finally have the piece that you wanted. Uh, which again, interestingly, is exactly what Aristotle talked about, that we find uh, leisure as the ultimate goal of society. And of course, uh, that's on the back of slavery. Uh, so this reopens the question of whether we're actually against slavery or we just keep pushing the boundaries of, well, who has to be the slave for us? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, again, important to think about uh, not just am I getting benefits, uh, but why do I think these are benefits and where did this idea come from in the first place? Mm. You mentioned optimization, you, you mentioned self-efficiency. Um, this makes me think about the whole trade-off with convenience. That In the past, we, especially in the last couple of decades, we kind of agreed that we can sacrifice our personal privacy for security. Now, it's as if we're sacrificing our personal privacy in the sake of convenience. So how far will we go in this, in this trade-off? And here I'm, I'm, I'm nudging the conversation towards one of my, my um, ominous, one of my favorite quote-unquote topics about, let's say, facial recognition surveillance, facial recognition software, about the surrender of personal data, um, the fact that we are targeted by, constantly by political ads that are, we're being profiled in terms of behavior, we're also targeted by huge amounts of disinformation coming from, from everywhere. So should legislators, and let's make this conversation a bit more political in this case, and talk about policy maybe, given all of these, these threats, given that we're engaged in all these trade-offs as individuals, isn't society suffering and shouldn't policymakers intervene? Uh, first of all, with regards to things like privacy and surveillance, um, I do think it's increasingly important uh, that we tend to think, again, following people like Zuckerberg, uh, that uh, if, you're, if you're against surveillance, it must mean you have something to hide. So this idea that we should be pushing an open society, uh, we should have uh, as much openness as possible, be an be a open book, uh, put everything out there. Sorry to intervene, does this come out from the whole, I don't know, Protestant ethic in the Netherlands, back in the days, we don't put curtains on our windows because right. we have nothing to hide. Right, right. Yeah, so I think it's, it is sort of fascinating now living in the Netherlands, seeing that, that people really do uh, put a lot of effort into what they put right in front of the curtain. Uh, so there is a sort of window display culture uh, that I see in the Netherlands, which I did not see in the US. Um, but again, this idea that, uh, for example, if you put the, uh, the giant Abraham or Sarah outside the house for the 50th birthday, uh, it was very confusing to me, this idea of, so am I supposed to now come into your house to celebrate with you? Mm -hmm. why, why are you telling me this? Um, so at the same time, you get this idea that we are becoming more and more comfortable putting stuff online, uh, naked photos. Uh, uh, every day there's some new Twitter uh, hashtag that gets you to reveal some uh, identifying piece of information that might help to unlock your password. Um, and again, there's this idea that um, why is there anything wrong with this? It's all good fun. 
or again, you're getting benefits from it. Um, and I do think it's important that we tend to think of privacy then uh, not as an end in itself, not as an intrinsic good, uh, but as a means to an end, as an instrumental good. And if it's a means to an end, then anything that gets me that end can be traded off for anything else that gets me for that end. So privacy can be traded for security. And again, like you said, it's a trade-off. So I don't have to think of privacy as anything intrinsically good. It's just one thing among many things that can make me happy. And if you have all these tech companies saying, no, 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 privacy, that's terrible. You don't want, you don't want privacy. Zuckerberg, uh, Zuckerberg said a decade ago that privacy is dead or something. Right. And it's important to, again, think about not about uh, is technology violating privacy. I think it's important that it's redefining it. Uh, so what we think of privacy today and what our grandparents thought of privacy would be so alien from each other that we couldn't talk about it. Uh, and this is part of the problem because we still use the same word without realizing the word has changed dramatically. Uh, and I think this exposes a lot of the generational rifts that are happening in politics today where it looks like we're all talking about the same thing, but we're really not. Uh, this happens similarly with fairness, where we think we're all talking about the same kind of fairness, but we, have, but we don't stop to define the word. So we uh, all think, well, everyone must be on the side of fairness. But fairness can be defined in at least five different ways. And what kind of fairness are you talking about? Are you talking about equality? Are you talking about opportunity? Are you talking about effort? Um, so I do think it's important always to think about not our technologies um, impacting our values positively or negatively, but are they redefining them, reshaping them mm -hmm. in ways that we're not paying any attention to? What advice would you give to European policymakers or U.S. policymakers, given all this? Well, what's funny is, again, going back to Zuckerberg's testimony, uh, you saw as he went on this sort of uh, speaking tour before Congress and uh, the British Parliament um, that the, the policymakers don't know what he's talking about. So almost always the first question had to be, explain Facebook to me. Uh, explain advertising. Mm -hmm. uh, or when Google comes, you know, explain your platform to us. Uh, and again, this is something that Jacques Ellul predicted in 1953. Uh, he said that uh, we do not have democracy anymore. That's, that's dead. Uh, we have technocracy. Mm -hmm. But he said technocracy is not what everyone thinks it is. It is not the rule of tech companies because tech companies have no interest in politics. But they're the only ones who have power anymore in the political culture. But if they have no interest in politics... That means that technocracy is just a void, that there is nobody in power who understands technology. It's like a vac vacuum? Right. So there's no one uh, with political power who can understand technology other than technicians, and they have no interest in governing. Uh, as we see time and time again, whenever Facebook or Google gets pulled into pol political discussions, um, and they just seem to make a decision and then hope nobody gets mad at them. Uh, but they're not really pushing a narrative. They're just saying, uh, well, this drives advertising um, and all content is good. So why should we care about fake videos of Nancy Pelosi, for example? It's just content. Um, so I do think it's important uh, to recognize that if uh, tech companies get increasingly powerful and then we try to regulate them, we're going to regulate them by asking tech companies to explain to us what they're doing, or in other words, ask tech companies to regulate tech companies. Uh, and obviously that, that's not going to work out well for us uh, because as we talk about often this black box culture, we all have no idea what's going on and we just kind of have to trust them. And now they're developing uh, increasingly these algorithms that are themselves black boxes. Actually, the technicians involved, they don't understand what's necessarily happening either. So increasingly... All this sounds like increasing chaos 
randomness and uncertainty, Nolan. Right. And I think this is why you have someone uh, like, for example, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who says the, that we need an, an anti-monopoly way of thinking, that we have to break tech companies down. Um, because if tech companies can only police each other, then we need more and more tech companies that are smaller and smaller, not giant tech companies uh, that we are sort of at the mercy of. What would you say about the um, differences of, of the whole narrative and the whole discussion of technology when we compare Europe and the US? So I think what's interesting is uh, there's a lot of discussion about privacy legislation like the GDPR. And what's interesting is this, this created basically um, a European internet separate from the American internet. Um, so when I go back to the United States, uh, I don't get the same pop-ups that I do here, for example. Um, and what's fascinating is, again, talking about it from the user experience side, that it is the pop-up that's the main uh, experience of the GDPR, hmm. which meant that legislation that was meant to help the user is experienced as a nuisance. And again, because I'm supposed to be concerned only with optimization and efficiency, this is seen as inefficient and suboptimal. So I get annoyed by the GDPR, and I become more and more on the side of the tech companies. <laughs> so the legislation that was meant to fight tech companies actually gets me more on their side. Uh, so as much as it sounds ridiculous to talk about uh, UX, UI, uh, when talking about uh, legal policy, I do think it is important to understand the actual user experience of these things. Uh, this happens a lot when talking about surveillance, when talking about facial recognition. Mm. Um, people say, this is surveillance, surveillance is bad. But there's uh, what we call in philosophy an excluded middle. No one bothers to explain why surveillance is bad. So if you just keep telling people surveillance is bad, but they don't experience the bad, then they don't think it's actually that bad. And then they don't believe you anymore. So you really need to spell out what explicitly is wrong with being surveilled. This is, for example, what Michel Foucault was trying to do. So for example, this idea uh, that he talks about the panoptic society. <coughs> and the worry for him um, wasn't necessarily that that meant uh, some sort of uh, people in power watching the powerless. He's, that's exactly not how he described it. He said actually it would create a society where everyone is watching everybody. So even uh, the police are being watched, right? Uh, we see this time and time again where people take out their phone and take videos of the police. Mm. So everyone's watching everybody. Shaming everybody as well. Right. Commenting and putting everybody under increased scrutiny right. all the time. And the problem that he describes is what's uh, come to be known as panoptic anxiety. <laughs> uh, this idea that what surveillance does to you um, isn't necessarily any sort of physical or psychological harm, uh, but actually that it prevents you from being you. Because you think you're always being watched, you don't act the way that you would if you weren't being watched. Whether or not you're being watched, you don't know. That's the problem. You never know. Uh, this is why, for example, when Zuckerberg got interviewed and had uh, a little post-it note over the webcam on his computer, suddenly everybody had to put a sticker over the laptop. And this becomes its own industry now, so you can buy them and give them as Christmas gifts. And what's interesting is this idea that, uh, again, if you ask people, well, well, what are you worried about? What do you think is happening? Who is watching you? Uh, it's always, well, it could be somebody, and I don't know, right? Uh, and then you have things like Black Mirror that shows you sort of the nightmare scenario that could happen uh, which, again, uh, means that it could be seen as not necessarily an anti-tech uh, narrative, but a pro-tech narrative, because they're the ones who are selling you the cover at the same time they're selling you the camera. 
so I do think it's important to really stop and spell out the details of these things. What exactly is wrong with facial recognition? And actually, we have a much worse kind of recognition that almost never gets talked about, which is gait recognition. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, so people can hide their faces. They really can't hide their walk. Uh, so increasingly, uh, we are developing things uh, in the Netherlands, for example, uh, like smart bridges uh, that can actually determine who's walking on them. I think China is also a pioneer in when it comes right, to right. gate recognition, and it's getting really dystopian there as well. Right. So uh, people uh, focus a lot on this narrative of uh, you know certain makeup you can put on your face, uh, which again will of course become its own industry. Uh, but it's really really hard to hide your walk. Uh, and what's interesting is the people who develop this, and this is what I deal with as a professor, uh, they often say either, well, it didn't occur to me that this could be used uh, to hurt people, or um, someone was going to do it, uh, so why not me? Um, similar with the guy who developed, uh, developed the deep fake technology uh, to allow anyone to make uh, fake porn videos of anyone they didn't like and release them on the internet. Uh, when he was interviewed, I think it was by Wired magazine, um, he said, yeah, obviously this is bad, but someone was going to do it anyway, so why not me? And capitalize on the opportunity. And Google does the same thing when they work with China. Someone's going to do it. We at least have an ethics. Shouldn't it be us? Mm. What would Nietzsche make of all of this if he were alive right now? Would he absolutely be certain that the sick got sicker? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be... Uh, Without question, I think uh, Nietzsche would would probably say, uh, you know, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe the part of the problem is that people are are increasingly reading me. So Nietzsche is is definitely seen and discussed a lot on the internet. Um, but the problem is, reading on the internet is a different experience than reading a book, and this is again the kind of mediation that we don't talk about. So we call uh, reading on an e-reader. And, and reading by hand, reading. But really what we are doing increasingly is we're learning to scan, not to read. Yeah. Uh, and because you're reading on the same device that you read Facebook, you read Twitter, you read uh, Tinder, um, all of this becomes sort of uh, combined in your head. Uh, and increasingly you just sort of uh, scroll through text, whether it's uh, Facebook or a book. Was it the American Neil Portman who said that the medium is the message, actually? Was that was uh, Marshall McLuhan. Okay. Right. Um, so again, this idea that uh, we really should pay attention to, uh, going back to this idea of uh, optimizing our time, uh, I talk about in the book the idea of the problem of multitasking, uh, that we think that we're good at it, we're not. Uh, but it also reveals how much of our experiences we think of as tasks, and that we uh, reduce to the level of things that we can either ascribe to technologies, uh, like intelligence, for example, like learning. Um, or they become things that I try to do as many at the same time as possible. And again, I have a technology that allows me to do five things at once, when in reality I'm just doing uh, one thing badly, then another thing badly, then another thing badly. And we treat our social life as if it's a professional life. I mean, we put everything into little boxes, we try to be optimal even now in our, in, our, in our spare time. So actually technology skews our perception of even leisure time and, and, and free time and social life. Right, exactly. And I think this is the kind of thing that uh, you see increasingly in pop culture, where you see uh, TV shows uh, showing a Tinder date, uh, where they're both on Tinder while on the Tinder date. 
which again it's is becoming very meta, no? Right, but it's it, it's actually built into the app itself because uh, at the same time it says it's a match, it also offers you the opportunity to just keep scrolling anyway, uh, revealing that again it's more of uh, not necessarily about pleasure seeking in the way we think about pleasure of sex, but actually as I try to describe in the book, then it might be the pleasure of getting to uh, basically decide who lives and who dies, swipe, swipe left, swipe right. But I want to challenge on this because many, many of my friends would say, fair enough, you know, Tinder and the rest, maybe there is a problem, but it helps me really choose a proper partner based on interests. Technology imbues me, it helps me become maybe a better human being. And, and here, maybe... It's 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 a bit it's a big topic, but but you also you're a critic of transhumanism as as a philosophy, which which um, argues that technology can improve the human condition. And I think I've got many friends, and especially the young generation, many people regard technology exactly as this as something that can improve your your lifestyle, can make you more uh, successful professionally, and find your partner. What's the problem? Well, again, on the one hand, it's important to think about how. Um, we measure success and how, again, technologies can change how we think about what these values are. Um, so that even if we are successful, we're successful in a technological world where success is often something that we don't get to define for ourselves, but is defined for us. And this is something that we try to live up to. Uh, in the same way that in the 80s, you would watch um, uh, romantic comedies and then think, well, that must be what romance is, so mm. I should try to be like that. And I think, on the other hand, that it's important to realize um, as I discuss in the book, that Tinder, I don't think, is actually necessarily about uh, finding connections as much as it is about experiencing power. Uh, and this is why it's fascinating when you look at how Tinder is similar to things like Kickstarter, uh, where researchers have found that the most successful uh, projects on Kickstarter have nothing to do with the project, but the attractiveness of the person selling the product. <laughs> uh, and this is why it's so important on Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Indiegogo, that you have a video and you have a very attractive person selling the product. So style over substance. Right. And similar with Airbnb, similar with Uber, uh, that it's very important a profile picture comes up uh, and that attractiveness becomes a measure of success. So I can certainly be more successful, but it's also important I be more attractive. And this is where transhumanism comes in, where we increasingly have technologies, whether it be uh, Photoshop or augmentation, uh, that allows me to, to enhance myself. And this is why I find it so worrying, this narrative of uh, technological enhancement as the road to a better humanity. Unfortunately, we have to close, although we have many, many other things to talk about. Maybe a couple of words on your new book, which is titled exclusively Nihilism, published by MIT Press. Again, nihilism. Didn't you cover the topic in nihilism or technology? Or Well, the idea was... Um, because I talked about uh, technology specifically, uh, I wanted to talk about nihilism more broadly. Um, so the book is developed as sort of a roadmap uh, or a tour guide through the world of nihilism. Um, so I talk about nihilism at home, nihilism at school, nihilism at work, nihilism at City Hall, um, and really try to describe nihilism not only through Nietzsche, uh, but through philosophers from Socrates uh, to uh, Adorno, Marx, Paulo Freire, Hannah Arendt, Simone de Beauvoir, um, and really show that actually there's a lot of philosophers who have been very concerned about nihilism, 
they're very diff different definitions of nihilism, uh, but that they all provide us uh, very interesting and important uh, ways of diagnosing uh, different ways that we uh, basically deny or destroy ourselves. I really look forward to reading your, your new book. Um, Nolan Gertz reminding us that technology and technologies are neither good nor bad, but they're also not neutral. So hopefully you managed to pick your brains with this episode of Brussels Bites, talking about the book Nihilism and Technology. Nolan, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Send us feedback, send us your ideas, and keep tuning in to Brussels Bites. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 